You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. It is a joy to be here with you. Um, like Pastor Dylan said, my name is Ryan, and um, I've been in Southern California for about 13 years. I came down here in 2010 to attend Biola University. Shout out, any fellow Biolans in the room? A few of you, I see you. Um, and that was a great experience, and shortly after Biola, I uh, started to work for Southlands Church. For a couple years, and then I actually was the um, Bible teacher at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa for a few years. So I have a few uh, people in here who remember me as Mr. McDonald and not as Ryan McDonald. And uh, this is a little picture of my uh, family. That's my wife, Stacy. We've been married for eight years. And then we're both holding Nora Grace's hands. This is my daughter who I was able to adopt through the foster care system. She was placed with us when she was just eight days old. And I've had the privilege of being her dad ever since. And then my biological son who's staring deep into the recesses of your soul for some reason in this picture. Um, He's normally a pretty happy kid. Um, His name is Zion. And uh, he's just a year old. Um, But I'm that's a little bit about me. Um, but I'm here as a representative of Foster the City. So Foster the City is a coalition of now 223 churches who have locked arms to find a home for children and youth who are in the foster care system. And so at its essence, Foster the City is just this uh, remote we're trying to work out. Double click. There we go. Cool. Thanks, man. Um Foster the City is a support, a way to serve the local church and her call to reach out to people on the margins and particularly children and youth who need a temporary home until their parents can be reunited with them. And so foster care is kind of a complicated thing to wrap your head around because it's not adoption. It can lead to adoption and 20% of the time statistically it does lead to adoption, but Foster care is really about the gospel of reconciliation. It's about the fact that God has given the church not just the authority and the ability to set the lonely in families, but to restore broken families back to health. And so I believe as a Christian foster parent, my role is to take the ministry of reconciliation that God has given me, And I go out into the world and I get to be an agent to see broken families, families that were separated, come back together in a healthy and safe way and be made whole. And over the last five years, my wife and I have been a part of three unifications of broken families. And I will share some of that with you as we go through today. But there is something sacred about being a part of seeing a broken family come back to health. Seeing kids who were estranged from their parents be made new and made right with their family is a profoundly beautiful thing. And so this is your ministry. The danger of having me come speak 
gives you the impression that, oh, this is Foster the City's ministry out here, and they're doing all the work, and they're going to come and tell us about the work that they're doing, but it's just the opposite. We are the servants, and you are the centerpiece. It's actually God's church that's moving forward with this work, and we get to happily sit in the background and serve and support Roots Community Church as you guys take steps to serve and love children and their families experiencing foster care. And so Danny is actually your church advocate right here, and so let's give it up for Danny. She is the leader of this ministry at your church, and so her and I are going to be at the table uh, over here to my right just to talk a little bit more with you guys about what this looks like. And there's really two uh, primary goals um, that we have coming to support the church. Uh, Number one is to ask people to prayerfully consider if God is calling them to be a foster parent. I remember when my wife first approached me and said, hey, what do you think about foster care? And this was one year into marriage. And I was like, oh, foster care is amazing. I don't know much about it. But, you know, these kids need a home and people should be doing something about it. She's like, no, dummy, what do you think about us doing foster care? So, oh, no, terrible idea. Wouldn't work. One bedroom apartment. We don't make enough money. How is this going to work out? And that started a process of my wife kindly leading me with this hand and the Holy Spirit kindly leading me with this hand over a year and a half as I wrestled and I prayed and I pushed back and I thought about logistics and I said, this can't work. Surely this is too costly. And I've had the privilege of now, on the other side of it, being a part of nine children's stories who have been a part of foster care over the last five years. Three of them reunifying with their parent and one of them bringing into my forever home. And God has profoundly changed me and gifted me with the privilege of being a foster parent. It is one of the most costly things I've ever done, but it is by far one of the most rewarding things eternally I have ever done. And so we are praying that families from Roots would prayerfully consider becoming foster parents. But then secondly, and just as important, that four households would wrap around those families to become support friends, to drop off meals, to pray for the children by name, and specifically to meaningfully and regularly engage in acts of love and kindness so that no family feels like they have to foster alone. And so those are the pillars of this ministry, prayerfully considering if this is the season and the time that God's calling you to step into foster care, whether married or single, and then having the church wrap around each family that fosters to support them with the team of support friends. And so we have two interest meetings coming up, one on the Sunday of the 22nd in Laguna Hills at the Movement Church, and then we have another one in February 7th right across the street at Watermark, who's also one of our partners, on Tuesday night at 6. And so those would be a great first step. Now, we're not a placing agency, so we are like the safest people in the world to talk about foster care because we don't actually have any kids I don't have any kids here that you can come see me about that I can send you home with today. There will be no children, youth, and foster care at the interest meeting. We are just a safe place to talk about um, all the different roles that you could potentially step into to move towards children and youth experiencing foster care. This morning, um, I want to teach out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to talk to you about an out-of-your-mind type of love. 
a type of love that seems so crazy that it draws the attention of many. And this clicker is really fighting me. Here we go. Okay. It is often said that love makes you do crazy things. Anybody heard that before? That when you're in love, you actually do strange and costly things uh, for the people that you care about. Even the dark and haunted 19th century poet Edgar Allan Poe once admitted, I was never insane except upon occasions when my heart was touched. And this is not just anecdotally true. This is psychologically true. In the scholarly article published in the Journal of Risk Research, they found that men are likely to take risks, some even life-threatening, wait for it, to get together with a female. Any shockers there? And that's because adrenaline is released when you're in love and it causes you to take risks and to act courageously. And this is not true of lovers. This is true of parents as well. Parents will do almost anything to keep their kids safe. And even good friends are willing to risk and sacrifice for those they deeply care about. The truth is love makes you bold. Love makes you a little bit crazy. When I was 19, I was in a very unhealthy relationship with my much younger girlfriend. And we would talk about getting married one day. We would dream about what kind of house we lived in. And it was just typical train wreck young romance that my parents were praying would end as soon as possible. And there was a house up the street. These are actually pictures of the actual house that I'm going to reference in my story. And this is the house here with the view of this beautiful lake. And me and my girlfriend passed by this house and we joke one day we're going to live in this house and have kids. And it was just, God has done a lot in my life. Okay. Let me just tell you that right now. And so one day during the build, there was a point where the windows were on, the doors were on, but the house was still accessible. So on a Saturday, when the construction crew wasn't there, I snuck into the house, unscrewed the door handle, took it to a locksmith, and said, sir, please help me, I lost the keys. Got a set of keys made, went back within a few hours, and put the lock back on the door. Now, this house sat empty for a long time, so as soon as the residents occupied the house, I promise you, I threw away the keys. But I did this all for this one moment on Valentine's Day where I made my girlfriend dinner and I set it up on the outside deck of this house overlooking this lake. And I pulled up to the house, pulled up my keys and said, hey, let's go have dinner. I opened the front door (laughs) Took her to the third floor, and we had this romantic dinner overlooking the lake. Come on, that's a little bit sweet, right? Mostly crazy? We could take a poll here. The truth is, love makes you do crazy things. And there are much healthier examples all throughout the Bible. Think about Jacob, who worked 14 years just to win the hand of Rachel in marriage. And this is what he said in Genesis 29, 20. He said, but Jacob's love for her was so strong that it seemed but a few days. Think about two of my favorite heroes in scripture, Shipra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter one, who defied the orders of the king and kept these baby boys alive, risking their own life to save these children. And of course, the ultimate act of sacrificial love the crucifixion of Christ, where Christ left everything and suffered the worst pain so that you and I could be reconciled to God. 
when you and I encounter a love greater than ourselves, it drives us to do crazy things. And over the past years of being a foster parent, I've had some pretty strange looks about my family and been in some really strange conversations, mostly people trying to make sense of the ethnicity and the ages of my kids. But that conversation that always seems to surface sounds something like this. Is that really your kid? Yes, she's my foster daughter. Oh, so you're going to adopt her? No, thankfully it's looking like she'll be able to return to her family. But isn't that going to hurt when she leaves? Yes, we will miss her greatly. And we will carry her in our hearts for the rest of our lives. And even though it brings us pain, we are actually praying, hoping, and working for the day when she can be back with her family. Wow, you must be a really good person. I could never be a foster parent. I would get too attached. Well, actually getting too attached is exactly what this child needs to understand how loved they really are. Relentlessly loving my foster daughter, even if she ends up leaving our home, is actually the best way to show her how much God truly cares for her. Loving vulnerable children and working towards the restoration of their family is a clear example of God's costly and sacrificial love for us. It's the gospel displayed with HD clarity. And so this morning, I want to explore this out-of-your-mind type of love, the type of crazy love that compels people to love people in radical ways, that motivates them to sacrifice for one another. A love so costly that when people look at what you're willing to give up, they actually think you're crazy. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to read through this together. It'll also be on the screen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. This is too far. Can you go back to the first? Is this the first verse? There we go. Thank you. I was like, wow, we're really jumping ahead here. Okay, start over. Verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right minds, it is for you. For Christ's Love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's 
ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this opportunity to briefly look at this passage of scripture. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us and you would remind us how much you love us. Lord, that the fruit of our time here meditating on your word and looking deeply at the scriptures would be that we are freshly in awe of the out-of-your-mind type of love that you had for us. And that that love would plant seeds deep in our heart and it would metabolize into acts of love and radical acts of love for others. So we invite your presence here to lead us and to teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The first aspect of an out-of-your-mind type of love, I'll let you do slides because this remote thing, I just, I don't have a career in tech, that's for sure. Christ's sacrificial love creates in us an out-of-our-mind type of love for God. So in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's primary task in the whole book is actually to give a defense of his ministry. See, believers in Corinth had been convinced by polished and successful traveling preachers that Paul's suffering and poverty discredited his apostolic authority. They taught that blessing, prosperity, and health were signs of God's favor, and suffering, poverty, and hardship, those were signs of God's judgment. And even though Paul personally led many of these Corinthian believers to faith, even though Paul remained with them for months laboring with his own hand so he wouldn't charge them money for his ministry, planting this church, these super apostles, as Paul sarcastically calls them, have convinced the church that Paul's suffering proves that he is not from God that no one in their right mind would endure the type of pain and suffering that Paul has experienced. Oddly enough, this ancient way of thinking isn't really that ancient, is it? In the quote I have for you, Charles Taylor in his highly acclaimed book, A Secular Age, says it this way, Western society's highest goal is to prevent suffering. Of all the goals, of all the strategies, of all of the communication that we receive about life, our highest goal, he's a Canadian psychologist whose this book is hailed as one of the best ways to explain our cultural moment. And he boils it down to this, that in the world we swim in, at every turn, what we are trying to do is avoid any type of suffering. Pastor Tim Keller elaborates on Taylor's work by saying this, in the secular view, the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you most happy. That's the meaning of life, to be able to choose and step into and create the life that makes you most happy. Think for a moment with me of who society holds up as worthy of imitation. Who are you and I every day encouraged to follow? Is it the poor or the rich? Is it the powerful or the weak? Is it the doubting or the certain? Is it the envious or the content? Is it the leader or the servant? Is it the influencers or the followers? In almost every advertisement, TV, social media post, you and I are told to avoid suffering 
and strive for comfort at every step of the way. And this thinking profoundly prohibits our ability to love. If you believe this, there is a ceiling on the love that you can give someone. Because the moment that they draw you into suffering, the moment that they make you uncomfortable, that is the limit of your love. That is the end of your love. And the Corinthians thought this same way. They had come to see Paul as a poor suffering servant, unworthy of imitation. Why follow someone who has failed to achieve success? Yet underneath Paul's poverty and suffering, he had a deep and satisfying union with God. What seemed like weakness was actually power, and what seemed like death was actually life. A few verses back in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul goes on to say this, We are genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, Dying, yet we live on. Beaten, yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. See, from a worldly perspective, Paul was living a failed life. His ministry had failed to get off the ground. He still had to labor with his own hands. He wasn't receiving enough money, didn't have social capital. But from a kingdom perspective, Paul had everything he needed in Christ to be truly successful. And it was a joy for him to suffer for the name of Jesus. See, what, what motivates Paul to persevere through such hardship was Christ's love. The out-of-your-mind love that God had for him did something in him that he was able to love God in the same way in return. Verses 13 and 14 say, If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God, for Christ's love compels us. We are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who was died and raised again. See, Paul did not look to build a comfortable life padded by money, reputation, adverse to suffering. Rather, Paul is convinced that because love compelled Christ to die in his place that he can no longer live for his own agenda and desires. He now lives his entire life for God. Paul uses a brilliant turn of phrase in the Greek that we just have to point out. The word translated out of your mind in the Greek is not the Greek word for insanity or madness like you would expect because of the English. It's actually the verb to describe someone caught up in amazement. So this same word is used in Acts 10 when it said, and Peter was in a trance because the sheet came down. And the Lord says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And he pushes back God communicating that the Gentiles are now accepted through Christ. But Paul is essentially saying, my opponents think I'm out of my mind when in fact I have been so amazed and entranced by the love of Christ that it is my joy to suffer for his name. Christ has so brutally endured the cross for Paul that Paul so willingly endures persecution for Christ. In other words, love of Christ drove Paul to do crazy things for God. I often get to hear people wrestling with the process of thinking about becoming a foster parent. And it is a big thing to wrestle with. 
there's a lot of implications for your life. And so I think it's good, it's wise to wrestle and work it through and, and think about the impact it's going to have. I often get questions like, won't this disrupt my life? Won't welcoming a child who's experienced trauma bring discomfort to my family? Won't this limit what I can do with my time? And the answer, of course, is yes. All those things and more. But church, this is the gospel that we believe in, that Christ disadvantaged himself so that you and I could be advantaged. He left the comfort of heaven so you and I could experience his love and his affection. And he's called the church to do the same thing for the 3,000 children and youth in our own backyard who are in the foster care system. I recently read a story of a big promotional luxury cruise that was going to be promoted through one contestant, which would win this trip of a lifetime, this three-week vacation, traveling to the world's most beautiful destination. And this woman won, and she was selected. And a few days leading up to this three-day luxury trip of a lifetime, she called and she canceled. And the producers of the show are just scrambling because they are going to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars in promotional material and the resources. It was all set up for months. And they're trying to get to the bottom of why she's not going to go. And finally, she says, well, my friend is very, very ill. She's going in for a risky procedure. And when she wakes up, I want to be there. And they just like couldn't believe that that's it. (laughs) <laughs> that's why you're not coming on this trip. And so they were bribing her and pleading with her. And they finally were just like, what is so special about this woman? And with tears in her voice, she said, this woman was the only woman who didn't give up on me when I was in my addiction. She's the only woman who opened her doors to me when I was on the streets and struggling. She was the woman who cleaned me up when I was detoxing and coming off drugs and vomiting. She would wash me and bathe me. She helped me find a job. She let me live here. She saved my life. I would have nothing without this woman, and it is going to be my joy to be there when she wakes up from this procedure. And church, that woman's story is our story. If you are in Christ, that is your story, that God has been there through every single step of the way. And any small sacrifice that we make for Christ, any discomfort we make in this life pales in comparison to what Christ has done for us. And it is our joy. It is our privilege to serve the God who has loved us so radically. And so this morning, I want to ask, have you received this out-of-your-mind type of love from God? Have you meditated? Have you sat with? Have you thought about the riches that Christ has won for you in the gospel? Does your heart soar when you sing the words of that old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. If you desire to be a more loving person, if you uh, desire to serve people and love them in a way that's going to change their life, start by drinking deeply from the well of Christ's love for you. That's the first step in the process of becoming a loving person. But it's also true that sacrificially loving others can be very exhausting. Have you found that to be the case? That if you continually love God and love others, it's actually quite taxing. I remember our first long-term 
placement was the biggest adjustment I've ever had in my life. It was this beautiful little girl, and she had significant medical issues, which meant that she could not sleep. And so this little girl, for the first four months of her life, was just constantly crying, constantly in pain. And it just so happened that the same month we were placed with her, I also was ordained as an elder at my church, along with being the youth pastor at my church. <laughs> and so I was feeling so pulled from every side, youth camps and youth groups and eldering and caring for this little girl. I was just at the end of myself. And that is a common thing that we experience. And it's often called compassion fatigue, which describes the physical, emotional, and psychological impact related to helping others. And so what I love about Paul's words here, it's not just the motivation and the source for you and I to become radical people of love, to love others with an out-of-your-mind type of love, but Paul gives us the secret to sustaining that type of love because it can be exhausting. And the secret to sustaining our second point, an out-of-your-mind type of love, is participating in Christ's death, which leads to life. It's participating in Christ's death, which leads to life. Verse 15, Paul tells us that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised. Notice Paul's flow of thought here. Lived, died, raised. That is the blueprint for a successful, sustainable life of radical love and generosity. And this is one of Paul's key theological teachings, that the only way to access the power of the resurrection is strangely enough through death. Death is the means by which God empowers us and raises us to new life. Jesus himself put it this way in John 12, 24. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, those who seek life by following this world's pattern of self-promotion and self-preservation will ultimately be damned. But those who seek life by following Christ on his way to the cross will be made new. And the Christian practice of daily dying to the world so you can be raised with Christ is called the cruciform life. Cruciform life is a cross-shaped life. It's a life under the influence and direction of the cross. A life that imitates Christ's humility, his self-sacrifice, and his willingness to place the needs of others before their own. And it is totally counterintuitive. <laughs> it's against the deepest fabric of our nature to care for ourselves by dying to ourselves. And the world is screaming at you to get yours, isn't it? To, to look out for number one, to get yours, to create the life that you Want Yet this is not the way of Jesus, and it's not the way to life with God. As it turns out, as you die to your sin in Christ, you are made new through resurrection power. And you possess, as it were, the spiritual life required to draw strength from God's spirit continually. Things like confessing sin, fasting, and practicing justice, they feel like death. 
They feel like these little deaths all the time. Oh, that is embarrassing. I don't want to confess that. I don't want to share that with my roommate. I don't want to share that with my parents. I don't want to share that with my spouse. Is it really that big of a deal? Can't I just confess it to God and kind of move on? Isn't that a lot cleaner? I don't want to fast. Like I, I got to work. I got a full-time job. I'm raising kids. Like why would I, why would I die to my desire to eat? I don't want to welcome a child who's experienced trauma into my home. That is going to just turn my whole world upside down. These are practices that no one wants to do at first until they start realizing how much life there is in death. How Jesus was really up to something when he put the cross before the crown. And that actually opens the door for your life to be filled. It's kind of like digging out the muck and the dirt from an old well. The more you dig, the more God's living water freely flows to your life. And there's just this refreshing communion with God. See, when you welcome a child who's experienced foster care into your life, you also welcome their pain, their loss, their dysfunction, their attitude, their behavior, their anger, their trauma. It just kind of all comes with them in one messy, sticky, sloppy package. And the only way you are able to sustain healthy love for someone who's continually bringing you pain, loss, dysfunction, anger, and trauma is by dying to yourself dying to your vision for your life so you can receive God's supernatural life. I've experienced the, this the most in my fostering journey in terms of my sleep. I love sleep. Sleep is God's gift to God's people. I'm an advocate for sleep. At one time, before I had kids, I literally went to my doctor and I said, I'm sleeping nine hours. Is that too much? And he laughed at me and he said, do you want to have kids one day? <laughs> I was like, yeah. He's like, then you're not sleeping too much now. <laughs> and that has been one of the aspects that's been the most profoundly disruptive as we've welcomed these kids into our home because they've just experienced horrendous things. And so nightmares are a huge part of their experience. And so I am constantly over the last five years been called into these kids' rooms. The other day, um, one of our kids called me into the room. They're having this nightmare and I had an important thing to do the next day and I was already tired and I already stayed up till 1130, which is way later than I want to go to bed. And I'm just thinking of everything I have to do tomorrow. I'm thinking of the energy and the clarity I'm in a need for the thing that I want to do tomorrow. And I'm so tempted to be angry at the kid. Like, just go to sleep already. Just, go, just lay down and go to sleep already. And so I'm trying everything. I'm like, do you want to have a flashlight with you? They're like, no, I don't want a stupid flashlight. All right, all right, all right. Like, can I crack the door? You want the door open? I don't want the door cracked. It was just excuse after excuse. And so finally I go, well, what do you want? And she goes, I want you. I want you to stay with me. And so I stayed with her for an hour and a half, scratching her back and combing her hair and making sure that she knew that the terrible things that had happened to her in her past were not going to happen that night. But it wasn't until I died to myself that I was able to experience that connection with her. And the next day, that big project went really well and God gave me energy 
And I just thanked God that I didn't miss an opportunity to rewrite this girl's story. That some of the people in your life who are there to care for you and stick by your side, they do care for you and they stick by your side in Jesus' name. And so foster care really is, at the end of the day for the Christian, an invitation to the cruciform life (laughs) when you boil it down. You invest in these children, you create these rhythms and these disciplines and you see them grow and mature and then 14, 18 months, two years later, they're out of your house and you never see them again. You're sowing these seeds, but you don't get to taste the fruit. Conventional parenting, you work really hard and hopefully your kids have a good relationship and then if you hit the jackpot, they'll get your grandkids one day and then there's this return on investment. But in foster care, that return on investment in the natural dies. I think too about how critical birth parents have been of my wife and I and our parenting their children. And my wife and I have been accused of abusing the kids in our care twice. One time we actually took, we had to go to a, a doctor at Orangewood and have the child assessed. And the doctor in tears looked at us and said, thank you for caring for this kid so well. My job is to examine kids who are being physically abused and tortured. And I don't get to see a lot of healthy kids. Thank you for bringing this child in. Because there was just a birthmark on her back. And everything within me and my flesh just wants to be like, are you kidding me? (laughs) I have up and in my whole life to care for your kid. And you are doing whatever you can to get in the way of that and to move this kid to another placement. And I'm just so tempted to well up in my flesh and just to say, who do you think you are? And it's in those moments where the cruciform life comes knocking. And I am invited to remember my Savior. This accusation is nothing compared to what Christ went through on the cross. How humiliated he was, how rejected he was after living nothing but a life of radical love. And I'm drawn up in the experience of the cruciform life. And once again, living water flows. And I find strength to keep loving this family, even though they keep throwing accusations and hits and lies about my wife and I. And so what Paul's saying in this passage is strangely enough, counter to the advice of this world, the way that we find life is actually in death. Death to self, death to pursuing our own needs. It's letting that kernel die so that new life can come and bear fruit. And the last thing I'll mention briefly before we close our time in the word is that Christ sends us out as ambassadors to offer his out-of-your-mind type of love to the world. So not only does God love us with an out-of-your-mind type of love that makes us want to love God in return with an out-of-your-mind type of love. That love is sustained through practicing the cruciform life, but then we get to go share that love with the world. We're God's ambassadors. We're his agents to be sent out and to tell people about this king and his radical love. Those who have been reconciled to God have been called to implore others to come to Christ. We are God's ambassadors and we're armed with the good news that God is offering this crazy deal of a lifetime to anyone who would confess their sins 
and confess that Jesus is Lord. A love that cleanses you from sin and transforms you into the righteousness of God. A statement that I still don't fully understand. What that means is that as you've died and you've been raised with Christ, you are now a walking, talking, praying, eating, singing, loving form of the righteousness of God. You are embodied the righteousness and love of God wherever you go, sent out as God's ambassadors. And ambassadors, they carry the culture and the customs of their home country. That's what they do. They take the culture and the customs of their home country and they bring that to bear in a new environment. They work, as it were, to represent the culture and customs of heaven. That is the call of the Christian, is to treat people according to the standard of the kingdom of God, to enact justice, to set captives free, to advocate for the oppressed, and to do so even at great cost to themselves. I love what N.T. Wright says about this passage. He says, The Corinthians found Paul's work hard to fathom because Paul was behaving like someone who lived in another world. (laughs) Paul really was out of his mind. He really was loving in a way that was hard to describe because he was representing the culture of heaven wherever he went. And and the church gets to offer this type of love to the world, particularly as we're talking about today, to kids experiencing foster care and their parents. So many parents who have their kids removed, they themselves were abused when they were kids. They themselves were rejected, and our world is so harsh. I I swim in this world, so I've seen the comments. I've heard the way the world talks about parents who neglect their children. It is awful. Like, these families are hated by the world. They're despised. They're rejected. Some of the families I've gotten to know, the things, the ways that they've been, been treated is heartbreaking. You realize they were once the little kids, who didn't have the type of unconditional love that they needed to give it out to their own children. And so we are called to show grace even when the world shows hate to these parents who have their kids removed. And I believe God's called us particularly to share the ministry with re- of reconciliation with them. That we of all people in the world know the power of the gospel to transform lives. I have a, a photo here of... Um, my daughter, Nora Grace, and then one of our placements. And uh, that's her mom and her grandma. And I have to cross their eyes out for evident reasons. Um, But one day I was talking to her mom, and it was during the pandemic, and she was so just downcast. She had been evicted unjustly from her apartment, Um, She had been physically assaulted by her romantic partner multiple times, and she was living in her car with her and her grandma. And during March of 2020, they canceled visits temporarily until they could understand how to do them safely. And so at one point, it had been over three months since she had seen her little girl. And I answer the call for the FaceTime visit, and I have our foster daughter ready to go, and she just looks at me with this ghostly look and just says, Ryan, I can't do it anymore. I can't be this little girl's mom. I can't do this. And so I took the phone in the bedroom, and I began asking her questions, and the Holy Spirit just filled me with this prophetic voice, and I just looked at her, and I said, you are this little girl's mom. She needs you. 
She needs you. And right now she's waiting in the other room to see you and to smile at you. And I know that terrible things have been done to you and said to you, but you do have the strength to go in there and do this visit and meet with your little girl. And so she's just weeping and she finally just wipes the snot and the tears away and says, okay, Ryan, I'm ready. And so I take her back in the other room and she had her two hour visit playing with her daughter. But church, that's what we have. We have the words of life. And so many of these families and these parents, all they've heard is words of death their whole life. Just words of death. You'll never amount to anything. You're not worth anything. And then the accuser comes and says, look at all these mistakes you've made. Like you're trash. You, you don't have any value. And we, the church, we hold the message of the gospel that says, no, that is not how God sees you. That is not how God experiences you. God loves you and he wants to know you. And he is the God of second chances. And so now that this photo right here is after months of this little girl being in our care. That was the day we were able to give them our address and they were able to drive to our house and pick up their little girl and off they went, reunited as a family. And that is the power of the gospel when it comes to bear in foster care ministry. I think too, the last story I'll share as I close of just the craziest day of my life emotionally, which was... February 1st, 2019, it just so happened that on the same day, the judge said, you're going to adopt Nora Grace, who you saw in the photo, and then you're going to see your foster son reconcile with his mom after months of fostering. On the same day, so on the same day, I'm getting dressed for court to go legally and officially welcome Nora Grace as my forever daughter. I am preparing my heart to say goodbye to my foster son who's being reunited with his mom. And my wife had this brilliant idea because we had this huge adoption party planned. Like, why don't we make it a joint party to celebrate uh, the mom and all of her hard work being reconciled to her son and to celebrate our daughter entering our family. And so it was a joint party and I had over 123 people from my church there in the lobby of our church celebrating bounce houses, huge potluck. It was a massive party. And at one point I welcomed up my foster son and her mom and her mom's sister. And for about five minutes, we just told our community of how hard she had worked. And as we just honored her with words of life, just without being prompted, my entire community stood to their feet and applauded this woman. And she just hit the ground weeping. And afterwards, she said, I have never felt love like that in my entire life. And it was the church at her best. It was the church speaking life and honoring people who had received nothing but death. And so church this morning, as I come to share with you, yes, this is about foster care. Yes, there are kids who need a home. And I, I hope and I pray that you consider welcoming your home to these amazing kids. But more than that, I pray that you realize that God has given you something profound in the gospel. That there's a type of love that you have that the world is desperate for. And that Christ has been clear that we are to run to the poor and the people on the margins. And we are to share and show them how valuable they are in Christ in the name of Jesus. And I pray that you continue to take steps, even as you take communion and 
practice the cruciform life in sacrament, that we draw from this amazing love that God has given us and we freely give that out to the world who is desperate for the message of reconciliation. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for time in your word. Thank you for stories that illustrate just how powerful this good news really is. Good news that can restore broken families. Good news that can set lonely children in a new family. Good news that can bring people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life with just a word, Jesus. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Roots. God, thank you for their faithful love and devotion to your word as they practice gathering together around the word of God, as they practice loving their friends and their parents and their children and their neighbors and those in their midweek groups. God, would you bless them? You have truly started a good work here. And I pray, God, that you would only increase it in this year, God, that this would be the year of radical love, the year where more and more people are bringing stories of, guess what? Guess who I got to pray for? Or guess what God just did in this person? And guess who's coming on Sunday, God, as they just rejoice in sharing this out-of-your-mind type of love that you've given us in Christ. God, we pray that this would be a year of much fruit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.